right, we're in uh, 1 Timothy this evening, chapter 1. Just to set our passage in its larger context, we're going to be looking at the last part of... of uh, well, I'm all the way past Hebrews already. 1 Timothy chapter 1, page 1177, if you're using the church Bible. Uh, to set it in context, you'll recall t Paul warned Timothy about false teachers in the church in Ephesus, where Timothy remains. Uh, and it seems like one of the key features of their false teaching is a desire to teach the law and in some ways use it legalistically and perhaps self-righteously. And so Paul said, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's verse 8, jumping down in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel with which I have been entrusted. And that leads him then to the thought of reflecting both on the gospel and what it means that he has been entrusted with the gospel. So that leads to a discussion in this paragraph 12 through 17. And then in verses 18 through 20, he returns back to Timothy and the instructions through t for Timothy. And we may or may not get there tonight. So we'll see how far we get in the teaching here. Uh, at any rate, I will read verses 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the God, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blasphemy. This is God's word. God. Let's pray. Christ Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world to save sinners. We know ourselves to be sinners in need of your mercy. We thank you that you showed mercy to Paul those years ago, and his salvation then is to us an example. And we ask that as we reflect on his testimony here in this passage, that you would teach us to delight ever more deeply in the gospel, to rejoice ever more greatly in who you are, and to live ever more faithfully as we respond rightly to your word. Amen. All right, well, as is typical for Paul mentioning the gospel in verse 11, that it was entrusted to him, that the gospel has done something in his life, leads Paul to thanksgiving. Do you see there in verse 12, it begins, I thank him, Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
he thanks uh, the Lord, he thanks Christ Jesus for three things. I thank him because he has given me strength, because he has judged me faithful, because he has appointed me to his service. Uh, Paul, of course, likes to use all these subordinate clauses to pack the idea in, but really that's what he's saying here, is I thank Christ Jesus our Lord for a variety of reasons. He's given me strength, he's judged me faithful, he's appointed me to his service. Well, given me strength refers back to being entrusted. He has given me the ability, he has enabled, empowered me to bear his gospel message. The second thing, being judged faithful, initially can sound a little bit arrogant. You know, he looked around and he saw I was the most faithful and that's why he chose me. But in Paul's uh, 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 Greek writing here, there's a play on words. The same word or, or the same root in a variety of forms is used in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. He says, I was entrusted with the gospel, verse 11. Verse 12, I was considered trustworthy. Verse 13, although I had previously acted ignorantly or um, uh, uh, was among the untrusting, that's the, uh, it doesn't come across in English very well, but it's the same root there. And then in verse 14, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with faith. Well, faith and trust in Greek come from the same root, so it's the same word there, that it overflowed with trust. So if we look at that larger context and play on words we're seeing there, we see how Paul uses this. He's not saying, I was considered the most trustworthy out of all the possible people that God could have sent and praise the Lord for that. Rather, he's marveling. He's saying, although I was previously untrusting, I lacked faith, the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me so that I could have faith and then be entrusted with this. And so he's really marveling, saying that he made me someone who could be entrusted with the gospel message. And really that gets at the same idea, pointing me to his service. And that's a basic biblical principle is that God calls people who are unworthy, tasks them with the tasks that he gives them, and then through his spirit enables them in dependence on him to do those things uh, that we could never do in our own might, but in dependence on him can do. Uh, just one passing comment to set us up for a few weeks down the road here. When he says appointing me to his service, that word there is uh, uh, diakonoia, uh, service. It's the same root that we get our word, English word deacon from. So it, it, we're going to see when we come down the road that that can be used in a sort of general sense to refer to Christian service, and it can apparently be used as the name for officers as well. But Paul here is saying in some sense he himself has been appointed to act as a servant in the church. So, verse 13, Paul is not self-righteous like these teachers uh, who have gone astray, who try to teach the law but don't recognize themselves as lawless sinners. But rather, how does Paul describe himself there in verse 13? Three not very flattering categories. A blasphemer? What's a blasphemer? I can't pronounce it tonight for some reason. Blasphemer? A blasphemer, is that what you said? <laughs> Sounds breakable. What is a blasphemer? What does that mean to blasphemy? Maybe some of our kids don't know, so we should. Is there an adult who has a succinct 
college student, a almost college student. <laughs> Blaspheming is to speak against the things of God. It's to use the Lord's name in vain. It's to mock the gospel. The, the blasphemy is uh, uh, speaking against what is holy in a profane way. What are the other two ways he describes himself? Persecutor. A persecutor. That's right. He, he was violently opposed to the, a church, to the church to start with. And then one more. Insolent opponent. An insolent opponent. I think the root there is uh, related to our word for hubris, that he um, acts, you know, set himself up as his opponent. But no longer. Why? Because he received mercy. He acted ignorantly in unbelief, but now has received mercy. Again, that can sound a little bit like he's saying that you get a free pass if you act ignorantly. But then when we read it together with verse 16, where again he's going to say, I received mercy for this reason, that fills it out a little bit more. Um, nevertheless, he does seem to be saying that there's some sort of a distinction between knowingly opposing the gospel and acting ignorantly in unbelief. And yet even then that's strange because Paul, as we know from his other letters, was trained as a Pharisee, trained in the law, Hebrew of Hebrews, on down the list. And if even a well-trained Pharisee teacher of the law can act ignorantly in unbelief, then certainly people, you know, in other continents you would think fall into this category. He doesn't say that therefore they're excused or off the hook. He's still guilty and so therefore receives mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. So he's still saying, I deserve punishment. I am an object of mercy. And yet in some sense, this acting ignorantly in unbelief, it's different than what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews warns about of, of sort of apostatizing or blaspheming, although he refers to himself as a blasphemer, but uh, it's a little bit of a paradox here. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. yeah, and that's a really important point. Thanks, Chris. And I'll just repeat it just in case some people didn't hear you, is that the blaspheming, Paul was a faithful Jewish teacher of the law. The blasphemy was that he spoke against Christ. And if you think that through logically, uh, it's equating Christ with God. He's saying, by speaking against this man, Christ, I was really speaking against God himself. And even entailed in that is a pretty high view of Christ's uh, divinity of his, of his person. Yeah, Nate. Uh, I was just going to say, this is uh, what Paul will warn against people who turn their back on the faith and follow the world or something like that. They know what's true, but they're like, I'm going to go after this other thing that seems to be a high-handed yeah. sin uh, and full knowledge and just saying, yeah. And, th and that's right, because he, he's heard Stephen's testimony, but he hasn't really met Christ at this point when he's acting ignorant. But I think, um, what is it called, exvangelical or deconstructing your faith? We keep seeing Christian celebrities um, doing this, which raises questions about the idea of a Christian celebrity in the first place, maybe. But uh, that's another discussion aside from this. But, uh, but yeah, that's sort of um, someone who has set themselves up as a teacher Christian teacher and then turns their back on it. That's different than Paul, who has not yet known Christ uh, in, at this point. That's right. 
why are you persecuting me? Um, which in there, there's a lot packed in to teach about the church, that the church, <laughs> what you do to the church, you're doing to Christ in a sense. Um, so he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but no longer because he has received mercy. And what shape does that mercy take? Uh, he tells us in verse 14, mercy is the grace of our Lord, which overflowed to me. And it produces two things in his life. Sorry, I didn't raise my voice enough to make that a question. <laughs> what are the two things it produces in his life? Grace. Faith and love. Yeah, just reflect on that for a minute here. The grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed to me. Uh, California is on flood warning right now. Uh, and this language here is, 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 is not just flooding, but over flooding. Um, it's the same, uh, he puts the hyper prefix in front of it, which we also have in English. And Paul apparently loves to coin these words by tacking hyper onto the front. So it's you know, hyper abounding grace to me, um, overwhelming flood of grace. Well, the mercy is he didn't get the punishment he deserved. The grace is he got something that he had never earned the grace of our Lord Jesus, and it overflows with faith and love. And those faith and love, he says, are in Christ Jesus. That is to say, it's not just a human faith and love. Um, the new Indiana Jones movie, it has lots to complain about, but one of the key things to complain about is that he says in there something along the lines of, I've seen enough that I don't think it matters what you believe in, it's just how hard you believe. Well, that's the exact wrong take on faith. It's not, it totally matters what you believe in. It doesn't matter how hard you believe it. As long as you believe in the right thing, um, that's, that's what matters. All that to say, what Paul shows in his life is not human faith. It's not human love, but it's love that, and faith that comes from Christ Jesus. It's more than human. Uh, it's, it's the spiritual life of Christ himself lived out in Paul through the Holy Spirit. And this leads Paul in verse 15 to the first of five times in the pastoral letters, which is Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. The first of five different times that he introduces a phrase or a, or a statement with something along these lines, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The sense seems to be that this is a saying that's going around. I don't know if they put bumper stickers on chariots and carts in the ancient world, but maybe it's like, you know, here's a Christian slogan that's roundabout, uh, maybe a line from a hymn or an early confession, maybe a piece used in early liturgies. But remember, you have, uh, he's warning Timothy that there's some teachers who have swerved. Uh, verse 6, they've swerved from these things and have wandered into vain discussions. And you might recall, if you were here last week, that in, 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 in contrast to these teachers who are promoting idle speculations, he says, focus on the stewardship from God, the, the way that God manages the world, uh, redemption, history, the essentials of the gospel, that's what you should focus on. And so in these letters then, Paul is picking out these sort of key slogans, and he's saying, this is something to cling to, that all churches accept, and I'm commending it to you as well. It's not some secret knowledge. It's the basic. Well, what is the statement? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's about as simple of a statement of the gospel message as you can imagine. And yet there is a lot packed into verse 15 here. 
Let's chew on this for a few minutes, and then we almost certainly will not get to Timothy, but that's all right, and we'll save that for next time. Um, uh, first, okay, the statement itself is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The preface to that, he says two things about this saying. He says it's trustworthy, and it's deserving of full acceptance. That word full acceptance, it can be used, uh, it, 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 it can be, it can mean two different things, and it's just, you know, it's hard to decide which one. One is it could be saying it deserves acceptance by everyone in this room, so we should all accept it, so full in that sense. The other is you should fully accept it, like 100% you should accept this, not, not with reservations. Um, and I think I lean slightly more towards it saying this deserves universal acceptance. Everyone should cling to this statement. But before that, he says the saying is trustworthy. The basic gospel message is true, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, it's something you can lean on. It's something you can depend on. It's reliable. And then it's, uh, it's a universal offer. It deserves acceptance by everyone. It seems to have a few parts to it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Remember, Christ is not a last name, but it's, it's the title, Messiah. Okay, the Messiah of Israel is Jesus. He came into the world to save sinners. What does that logically entail, that he came into the world? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a 100% proof that it's going to convince Mormons or something of this, but yeah, it most reasonably is read to say he existed before he came into the world, that he wasn't just born to save sinners, but he came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world with a purpose. He came on a mission. So the pre-existence of Christ, his incarnation, and then his redemptive work, that he came to save sinners. Um, uh, let me keep track of my notes here. Two, two comments on that. Um, salvation, remember we encountered that word in Exodus a few weeks ago, that it's this kind of catch-all that entails uh, uh, freedom, deliverance, redemption, all of that, this, this catch-all category. But who did he come to save? He came to save sinners. And that actually parallels something Paul has said earlier in verse 9. He said, or uh, yeah, verse 9, that the law wasn't given for the just or the self-righteous perhaps, but it is given for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly, and sinners. So he said earlier the law is given for sinners. Now he's saying Christ came to save sinners. So Paul knows himself to be, oh wait, sorry, I'm jumping ahead or jumping behind getting off. Then I, I, I think probably this last little clause of whom I am the foremost is Paul's own addition to it. I don't think, however, this phrase was used in the early church. I don't think that that was, it's part of it, but Paul's saying, not only is this statement true that Christ came to save sinners, but I'm the foremost of those. I'm the chief sinner. And notice he doesn't say, I was the chief sinner back then. Now I'm a righteous teacher. He says, I am the first among sinners, uh, the chief sinner, the, the, the foremost. And yet, that's not bad news, that's good news, because who did Christ come to save? So he's saying, uh, on the one hand, I'm the worst of them, but on the other hand, that makes me the most eligible for Christ's work, that I am the sort of person that Christ came to save, a sinner. 
Paul's showing us a model then that not only is the gospel message uh, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, but this is what it looks like. You have to appropriate it yourself. You have to say, this is not just true in the abstract, but it's true of me individually, that Christ came to save sinners like me. What about him being the chief or foremost? Is he saying he took a scientific survey of all sinners in the world and determined that he actually is the absolute worst? I think the sense there, it's not necessarily hyperbole, but rather if you know your own sinfulness and you understand the depths of your sinfulness in light of Christ's grace and the work that he did on the cross, you recognize that the sort of petty comparisons of, well, I'm bad, but that guy down the block is even worse. You start to realize that kind of thing is foolish, that I am totally sinful enough to deserve damnation. And, you know, what's the point of arguing like, well, you're a little bit worse in hell than I am or that kind of thing, that it's, I deserve it all. I deserve the full wrath of God for what I have done. I'm the chief of sinners. And at that point, when you recognize that, it comes home, you know, it kind of doesn't matter how bad the other Nathans in the room are compared to me. Uh, I guess there's four of us, so, you know, you can try to rank us out or something. But uh, 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 that's the sense that Paul gets to here. And I have to, I, I'm sorry, I forgot a, um, I meant to bring a book that had a little excerpt in it I was going to read as an illustration. But um, this man named Thomas Bilney that I hadn't heard of before, but he was um, uh, Thomas, La is it Thomas Latimer? I can't remember Latimer's first name, but one of the English uh, Protestant reformers, he was his teacher. And in 1520, it was this saying here that he read that Christ came into the world to save sinners, that the gospel message clicked for him. He was one of the very earliest uh, uh, representatives of the Reformation in England and ended up being martyred for it. Um, and so he had some comments on his testimony. And if I remember, I'll just bring it next weekend. Yeah. Hugh Latimer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, so Hugh Latimer then also was one of, with Ridley and someone else was martyred in Oxford, is that right? The, oh, Cranmer was with them. Yep. And Latimer. Um, this, this gentleman, Bilney, was kind of a predecessor of them, I guess, um, whose name I was unfamiliar with. But uh, Questions or comments on that, on verse 15 there? Yeah, Jan. Yeah. And his goal was to love God that way. And it's, that's such a contrast to what he's saying now. And that, I mean, I wonder if that spoke to some Jews that, I mean, what is he saying? Yeah. That he wasn't good enough? He's a sinner. Well, he was perfect in our eyes. Yeah. And so it's just so beautiful to think about him just really recognizing Christ. Total salvation for yeah. not, not for words, but for Yeah, it, it's it can be tricky to know exactly what's going on in first century Judaism because right. you have things like the Day of Atonement, various sacrifices that are recognitions that I am a sinner in need of God's grace. Uh, and so I don't think works righteousness necessarily for a lot of Jews, and yet at the same time, clearly the gospels and other texts show us examples of self-righteous Jews who are judgmental towards those around them. Uh, the, uh, is it the Pharisee who prays, thank God I'm not like this tax collector here in, in the gospel? So, um, yeah, yeah, uh, Ben. 
just a small note, but I think it's interesting that Paul writes it in the present tense. Yeah. Of whom I am the foremost. Yes. I'm not saying of whom I was the foremost back when yeah. I was doing all those things that I'm not doing now. Yeah, absolutely. That he's recognized himself both to be a sinner, I am a sinner, the chief of sinners, and I am saved by Christ Jesus. Um, that both are true at the same time. Verse 16, then he comes back to this idea, but I received mercy for this reason. What is the reason? Why did he receive mercy? I guess if you don't cheat ahead, or it's not cheating, but what might you guess to show Christ Jesus what? If you're going to fill in the blank. I've shown mercy to show Christ Jesus. Sorry, someone said something. His power? His grace, his mercy, his patience. Yeah, that's what, that's what it says, is to show Christ Jesus' patience, to display his perfect patience. Uh, this idea of uh, 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 might display, that word that's used there, it, uh, that same term is used maybe a half dozen times in different places in the New Testament. Most famously in Romans chapter 9, where it's talking about election and it says Pharaoh was raised up for this reason that in him God might show his power or display his power. So Pharaoh is raised up and his heart is hardened so that God can go to battle with him and show his power. Paul, who's equally a sinner like Pharaoh, opposed to what Christ, or God is doing in Christ, instead of showing his power by defeating him, God shows his, the patience of Christ Jesus by pouring out grace to him. And it serves as an example for those who were to believe in, in him, Christ Jesus, for eternal life. Um, so Paul provides for us then a grace, uh, 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 an example of what it looks like. The grace of the Lord comes to us. It's through his grace that we have faith and love. We are sinners, but he came to save us. And that through him, believing in him, we may have eternal life. Not just life to come, but the sort of coming kingdom life here and now lived out in the midst of of our communities. And again, as so often, this then leads Paul to worship. And so it ends with this wonderful doxology to the king of the ages. Temporal kings are temporary. They rule for Queen Elizabeth, how long? 55 years or something? One of the longest reigns in English history. And yet compared to the king of the ages, it's hardly anything. The king of the ages, immortal, not subject to decay and uh, uh, death. He is imperishable. He's invisible. Uh, I'll skip the comments here on invisible, but the idea behind invisible is he's not just somewhere that you can climb up to the right mountain or go to the right temple and see him, but he makes himself known at his own will. Uh, he's sovereign and, and reveals himself in his own way. Uh, he's invisible. It's also related to being spiritual. He's the only God. In Greek, he's monotheo, the one God. It's where we get our word monotheism from. The only God. And so to him are honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And just one comment in the King James Version. It's the God only wise. And probably that got added in because Romans 16.27 has a similar phrase and uses wise there. So that's probably how that wound up in there and then winds up. Uh, in our hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. So that's uh, just total aside. I guess that's a low note to end on. I should have thought that through better. But <laughs>
we'll wrap up there. That, that, that's enough for now, and we'll, we'll look at Timothy and excommunications next week. Exciting stuff. <laughs> Any last questions or comments there? That's all right, then? Okay. Let's, uh, let's turn then to our time of prayer uh, together. I know we have a, a